This is Paul Siegel. You're listening to Wandering DMs. Wandering DMs is broadcast live at 1 p.m. Eastern on twitch.tv slash wanderingdms and youtube.com slash wanderingdms slash live. And now, on with the show. Hi everyone, welcome to Wandering DMs. I'm Paul. And I'm Dan, and on this episode of Wandering DMs, we're going to be talking about playtesting your game or adventure design. How do you do it? How much testing should you do? How much testing is too much? All that and more today <laughs> on Wandering DMs. Right, Paul? Too <laughs> much. Is there such a thing as too much testing? I don't know. Yep. Hmm. There's, there's certainly, there's certainly <laughs> yes, such there a thing is. as not enough. Certainly such a thing as not enough. <laughs> I feel um, that, okay, this might be one of those episodes that winds up being therapy for Dan. <laughs> um, and I've, I've, I've seen other people, maybe, you know, maybe I'm not even thinking game design right now, but I've seen other people uh, do too much um, a gold plating on a product. Um, and, our, you know, we have, an ongoing, uh, we have an ongoing joke when we do our uh, Wargaming Saturday night streams that... You know, I've been working on this war game design for 30 years now. <laughs> I see. I see. That's, that's, that, is, that is too much. That is too much, Dan. So, uh, so viewers, please help. Yeah, yeah. Um, so this is very timely for me because last, just last night, I was running a game of Fearful Ends for, uh, for some friends of mine. Um, uh, happened to be a friend's birthday and uh, asked me to come run a game for them. And I said, sure, do you mind if I uh, force you to play test uh, Fearful Ends? So, uh, so just did that. And uh, I think, you know, I don't know. I know how many uh, DMs out there watching do this. Uh, maybe this is just specific to folks who are running stuff at conventions rather than running home campaigns. But I, if you, if you have a module you love, whether it's something you wrote or something that you just really enjoy running, you should absolutely run it for multiple groups. It is amazing, I think, how different the experience can be and uh, the information you get back. Um, however, I will say, I always go into that with this notion of like, like a very scientific idea of like, oh, well, this is like experimentation, right? I'm going to get da different data from different groups. And I'm going to figure out how to refine and edit my my adventure to be even better. And then they're so I I know different. going. They're so right. desperate that I don't, there's like, there's no, how do I even make a comparison? I have like one data point here and one data point back over here behind my back. Like, totally. Give me an example of what, what has happened that you, you couldn't possibly compare. Well, here's, here's, here's the funny one. Let me tell you about uh, last night. And uh, uh, for anybody who's played or hopes to play in any of my convention games, spoiler alert, uh, I'm going to be talking about the uh, scenario Closed for Swimming, which I've ran just last night. And I've run uh, only once or twice, actually, at a convention so far. So the in the scenario, uh, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a modern-ish uh, Cthulhu scenario. And the players are uh, in a beach town. And there's uh, they start off in this town meeting because there's a bunch of shark attacks. And they're trying to... Um, 
they're trying to figure out, you know, how do we get the beach reopened? Uh, it sort of, it takes the premise from the original premise from Jaws, which I find to be very timely these days. Accidentally, this was not intentional, but yep, the, yep, yep. there's a, there's a undercurrent in the movie Jaws of this, this friction between, you know, uh, it's not safe. We can't let people go out and swim when there are sharks in the water versus all of our businesses are suffering because the beaches are closed. And so, uh, you know, everyone's, mm. you know, no one can make a living because all the businesses have to close. Right. Yeah. Uh, sound, sound familiar? Anyone? Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> so the troubles of lockdown. Um, so that's, that's the premise. And, um, it begins with a lot, there's a lot of stuff presented to them in that opening scene when they're in this meeting, a lot of different places that they can go investigate. There's something strange going on at the local ice cream shop. There's something unusual happening down at the radio station. There's something um, unusual uh, down at the boat rental place. And and I have all these different characters who speak up during this initial meeting to sort of present little teasers, little hooks for the players to potentially go investigate. As they do so, all of the, a lot of the evidence points to the ocean. And at some point they're going to want to get, get on a boat and go out there in the ocean. So the two times I've run this before, that's generally what happens. The players go to different locations in different orders, or sometimes they skip one or not the other, but that's fine. That's what I like. I like to have a little more content than the players could possibly uh, right. engage with. Right. But it has this <laughs> ramp up of them kind of like, Oh, it's an interesting mystery. This is kind of a trope in Cthulhu, right? This interesting mystery. And where, as we're unraveling it, we got, pushed into this direction of something that's actually truly dangerous and horrific. Um, the group last night, they decided, well, there's definitely something off about this shark attack thing. We think there aren't really sharks. Um, and we're worried about the businesses going under. So we're going to uh, prove that it is in fact safe, they decide. We're not going to go investigate what's going on. We're just going to prove that actually the water is perfectly safe because we have a character who's a scuba diver and we have a character who's uh, a television personality and has a cameraman with them and we have a character who's uh works at the boat rental place and has access to a boat so we're going to get on the boat we're going to drive out onto the or you know boat out onto the ocean this guy's <laughs> going to jump in the water dive into the water and we're going to film him and we're going to present look totally safe you should open everything up and of course that's where all the horrific things are is out in the ocean so they basically <laughs> jump past all the content in the video they were like let's go straight to the end of the game please and just screw all that we're just gonna we're just gonna gotcha. jump into the water and, and see the gotcha. horrors um yeah so i was like what this is like all this content that i'm that i'm trying to tune and tweak like they just skipped it they just they didn't do it at all yeah 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 and yeah. I'm on the fly having to do stuff, which I generally do, which I like, right? I like I like to improvise at my games. And so I'm having to do stuff where I'm like, well, this clue is normally over here, but they went this way instead. So how can I reincorporate the information in a different way and present it to them? So they still get the clue about what's going on, but in a different way, right? Right. So like in one case, um, maybe if they went to the radio station, they would find the facts that got sent to the radio station and then in this case, like, well, maybe the fax was actually sent from the boat. So maybe the, or maybe there's a copy of the original fax there, you know, and I'm kind of like trying to do that, trying to give them some of the clues, uh, you know, in, in different ways, deliver it in different ways, uh, even though they're, they're somewhere else, which is weird. Um, yeah, you know, it's so there you funny, go. It's, it's funny because you're making me think of uh, an adventure that I ha made and have never publicized. Uh, involving a an underground Koatoan community in a giant underground lake, 
And when I when I wrote it, the things that I designed specifically was like an entry an entry point to the giant underground lake, and then how to navigate, and then the king's quarters, and then a temple beyond that with a thing. And along the way, I just dropped some hints about well, there are other communities here with like princes and dukes, and they have a bunch of factions, and some are competing against the king. And so I was running this, I ran this maybe about three games or conventions or whatever. And at one of the convention games, people that I was meeting for the first time, they immediately were like, well, we're definitely going to go to one of the competing princes and get his assistance to overthrow the king. And I'm like, prepared none of that. Prepared for absolutely zero none of that and then the whole the remaining three hours was entirely improvised from from stem to stern um what is it about underground what is it about underwater adventures paul that makes them go completely let me let me let me put up uh let's see john miller has a comment here for us um it says uh yeah uh, that's right that's that's one thing about dungeon or even hex crawl it's hard to skip to the end but city-based scenarios are less constrained in that way um, do you think that's do you think that's true, Dan? Do you think that it, this is specific to more open ended, uh, you know, uh, location or point crawls as as we might call them, uh, rather than a dungeon? Can you have this problem in a dungeon? I think I, I think John's right. I, I, you're 100. percent That's a really great point. And for me, I was sort of I was in a uh, wildernessy type situation, right, where it was you know open ended and you can basically go anywhere. So that's a great point, and that's. One of the strengths, um, you know, and, and Joshua was talking to us a week or two back about the same things. One of the strengths of the the dungeon environment is that it, it really focuses possibilities for both the DMs and and the players end as well. Yeah. Um, by restricting the number of possibilities, um, it, it, it focuses you on what's what's available a little bit better. So maybe though, maybe it maybe a dungeon adventure would be more suitable for refinement and testing the way that we're thinking. Hmm. Maybe maybe now certainly when, the way I dun- design my dungeons because I don't want them to feel super linear is that usually it's, it, there are many paths that one can take through it. Yeah. In fact, one of my favorite dungeons has an objective of uh, it's in a cliffside and the objective is to find a route to the top, and there mm-hmm. are in fact three in the dungeon. So right. there's you know, many ways that the players can succeed. Um, so, so I think you, yeah, they might not skip to the end, but you're still going to get stuff where players go very different routes and, and encounter right. very different stuff. And but you might just have is, the way is, 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 yeah, three is a lot <laughs> different than than coming up with something that I'd never even anticipated in my in my wildernessy type adventure. Um, hmm. Uh, but players so... can still throw you for a loop um, <clears throat> just with how they interact with the stuff that's there, right? Like, I, I remember a situation where I was playing with a group <laughs> and um, and they were in a dungeon and there's a, a, a lich in the dungeon, uh, which I'm thinking is going to be like the big exciting boss fight at the end. And the players encounter him and one of the players just immediately kind of uh, prostrates himself in front of the lich and says, like, mm-hmm. I want to be your student. I want to learn from you. Take yep. you know, be my master, etc. Teach me the ways of lichdom, which was delightful, <laughs> delightful. <laughs> but it was sort of like, oh, is this taking the wind out of my out of the ending of my scenario here? Uh, I don't know. And I there's a lot right. I feel like I, I hear a lot of stories about like you know, beast comes out of the woods and goes after the party, and one of the players really, really, really wants to make friends with it and make a pet out of it. 
I feel is a thing that happens a lot nowadays. Yeah. So be on yeah. the lookout for that as well. There but even go. so, at least the Lich, right? You knew that it was in the game. Uh, and yeah. now that is a thing you can add a note to if, you know, in your in your notes. Like if the players want to make a treaty with the Lich, then here's the general scope of what they might do. So that would that would be helpful and on you know on topic. Sure, sure. Yeah, I guess that's true. I guess that's true. And I'm not saying that you know that there's no value in playtesting just because my players jump to the end in this one scenario. I still think that uh, I still think I learned a lot about uh, the the game and the mechanics and the and the scenario itself and what works and what doesn't. Um, and it's fun, honestly. I think that's part of the fun. I would say that it's part of the fun for right. me as DM because this is this question was posed to me. Uh, people like to ask this question, right? It's like, why do you DM? What what is fun about DMing? And for me, one of the things that's that is fun is seeing how differently some of these games can run when I run the same game multiple times. Um, now, I, I might respond me... to that question with with why is that a priority for you? I don't, you know, it's a good question, but I mean, you and I have t- said many times, right? Fun. That we what does we that delight... have to do with it? What? Well, you and <laughs> oh, jeez, let's not get into that. Fun? I, don't, I don't recognize that. What are you? <laughs> you and I have both said in the past, I think, that we love it when players uh, take us by surprise, right? When they go, when they make a left turn yeah. and take the take right. the scenario in a direction that we never imagined, right? Like that's that's some of the joy of DMing is is that. Yeah, and so and I that's certainly incorporate, yeah. and that is the challenge, right? And I and, yeah. and I enjoy putting stuff in the scenarios I write to enable that, right? I like putting open-ended content in my games. I like putting a character like a Lich who maybe is going to listen to somebody when they say, you know, be my master. Um, so, but then does does putting that kind of open-ended stuff into your game that enables you to do more improv on the spot, does that ruin our ability to play test and refine? Hmm. I got to admit, so now that we're talking about it, I feel maybe, you know... Um, you know, following John's John Miller's point, you know, maybe a, a more restricted and and frankly, what what I think of in testing in terms of role playing games, I do think of like a more restricted situation of either uh, a, a fairly limited you know dungeon level. I don't think there's any point in you know play testing an entire campaign world. Uh, mm. Probably play testing a mega dungeon. I mean, almost no one manages to even publish a mega dungeon. Never mind playtest it multiple times. And uh, James Malajewski's made that point a number of times is that the, even while I'm working on it, the thing is evolving all the time and it's literally never the same thing uh, twice. So for me, I got to admit, I think about testing smaller slices of the game. So for me, I think about testing a monster or one magic item or, um, you know, if I'm working on a war game, that's a much more... Um, you know, boxed in situation is I'm going to have, I know I'm going to have two armies coming at each other with a specific win condition and the two people will be competing. And the question there is basically, can I price balance the different units Hmm. uh, or in a card game or um, something like that? So for me, a lot of the time, now we're leaning into the conversation about are things like challenge ratings useful? And I know a lot of people badmouth them, but I feel that having some kind of challenge rating E type thing attached to monsters is helpful as a very rough guideline. And of course, like we're talking about here, there's so many different ways 
that players can come up the game and so many different class powers and spells and strategies and tactics that, um, you know, there'll always be some, there'll almost always be some kind of perfect way to defeat the encounter and that's great. But I do feel that I like having, you know, uh, for me, I'm not so interested in having a perfectly balanced encounter, but I am interested in what should the XP reward be afterwards? And it has to be something. Um, and I am certainly interested in, you know, gauging that risk level so that I can give a, a reasonable XP mm. award, for example, or uh, know how much uh, treasure is reasonable to attach to that. Um, so that's what I usually that's what I'm usually thinking about with my testing is, and I've, I've said a number of times on my blog, I think that creating a new object in a game, a monster, a spell, a magic item, a card, whatever, is only 20% of the work. And the hard part, the 80% of the work is testing and price balancing where it fits in with the rest of the game. Um, and I know not everybody agrees with that, but that has been my attitude for a long time. Uh, the interesting thing to me is, of course, I, I came to this conversation with just my experience last night running this horror game. And in that game, heck, uh, in, in, in horror games in general, I would say I'm never thinking about experience. I'm never thinking about treasures. And I'm rarely okay. thinking about the difficulty okay. of combats because the combats are all too difficult on purpose. Okay. Right. <laughs> right. The things that the players are encountering are meant to be much too deadly for them, and they should run away in terror. That's that's the point of horror. Um, so it's fascinating. Uh, I will say this though: what I'm as, as I agree with your concept of trying to limit the scope down of what you're testing, and as I think about what what am I getting the value of testing in a horror campaign or horror scenario is not the path through and how they connect the clues and how they get from one place to mm -hmm. another, but the specific locations. If I boil it down to just the locations, sure, this group didn't go to the ice cream shop, but they did go to the ocean. And that is a location that uh, all, all my groups went to. They all went to the ocean. And so what kind of questions do they ask? And what things are, am I missing from my quick, yep, easy yep. to look up notes? Yep. You know, would they, oh, this group asked for, you know, what is the... You know, what is the, the, the meaning of this uh, acronym on the side of the boat or something like that? And I'll go, oh, I didn't write that down. I, that should be in front of my face so that when they ask that question, I can don't have to go digging, right? Right, right. So it's a lot of oh, stuff like some, that, I think. Uh, yeah. yeah. There, are some, there are some great comments that I got I to gotta pick up on. So uh, sure. William just said, uh, it seems like, oh my goodness, what great, what great conversation. So William just said, it seems like the goal of playtesting is maybe, and we're thinking like challenge rating type things, is maybe less about making it perfect, or at least I am, less about making it perfect and more about finding overlooked doomsday scenarios. And I think that's a great, uh, I think that's a great point. And I heard, um, you know, Frank Mentzer a while back talking about one of the places that uh, the creators of original D&D really fouled up was the carrion crawler monster with its eight mm -hmm. paralyzing tentacles that don't actually do any damage. And it's an interesting case because uh, like in the monster mark system that appeared in White Dwarf magazine at one point, that's the kind of thing that totally breaks the system is that system is totally based on take the, you know, expected damage per round, right? That's, that's a common assessment. Take the average damage per round and do some kind of math to it. And if you make a monster that on the one hand does zero damage per round, and at the same time can wipe out an entire party in one round and render them incapacitated, that tends to break 
those kinds of attempts at uh, point-based systems. And so even if you're not talking challenge ratings, right, original D&D has monster levels, right, has monster level tables. What mm -hmm. level are you likely to show up on? And yeah, they really glitched up the carrion crawlers and is originally it shows up in a very low level table and then you switch to first edition and that's the monster that actually made the biggest adjustment in monster level tables. Um, and they totally, they, they totally uh, didn't realize initially exactly how perilous that was. And there's a little piece of text in the, in the AD&D monster manual. It says, Karen crawls are greatly feared. And there's a reason for that. It's like I put, they put them on the wrong level table, frankly. <laughs> that's great. So I, feel, so I think that's a good point about just trying yeah. to, you know, there might be something that you overlook, like how power is, like how powerful a vampire is, like we we're talking about yeah, last. Yeah, last week. yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the, the idea of, of stuff that's overlooked is definitely uh, key there. Yeah. I, I, I'm right? not sure that it necessarily needs to be doomsday level stuff, right? Yeah, uh, yes, that's bad. Yeah. Yes, I don't want. I want to eliminate stuff that's just going to accidentally completely uh, wipe the party and disrupt the whole game. But also just stuff that's going to screw up the pacing, right? Stuff that's like, oh, no, no, I forgot. I didn't think about this, and the players asked for this thing, and now i got to go dig through my notes, and and the whole game kind of gets interrupted for five minutes. Like, that's, that's stuff right. I want to find, too. I want to yes. find stuff yes, yes. like that so that the next time I'm a little better prepared, if somebody does something similar, I can, you know, smoothly integrate that into the game, whatever it is they're talking about, and, and, and push along. Yes, very much so. And the other the other thing that that is has scrolled off at this point is I believe John a couple of minutes ago was asking like how much testing did they do for original D and D? That's mm -hmm. a really interesting question, <clears throat> right? And uh, you know I'll say I'll say one thing I noticed is that in you know our foundational document chainmail, right? It does say um, uh, early on it says these rules have been thoroughly play tested over a period of many months. <laughs> right, which of course I, I blush and shame at um, uh, myself. Uh, so they, so they can sit. So at least, but again, that's a, that's a limited war game, right? That's that's mm -hmm. a clear mm -hmm. boxed in scenario on your sand table, and you've got five types of terrain, and you have a limited number of units, and you're clearly marching at two armies at each other to destroy each other, and that's clearly a very limited number of things that could possibly happen, and there may be a number of months counts as solid playtesting. I saw another person who is uh, still currently at Wizards who really ought to know these kinds of things, who claims uh, there was very, very little playtesting um, in original D&D or um, uh, the, the numbers of things. And so I saw them writing, the, the policy was basically make up some numbers and diddle with them until the game plays the way that you want was the philosophy as far as he can tell. Um, mm. You know, mm. and particularly for a wide-ranging role-playing game like Arneson and Gygax were playing, I don't see any other way that you can do that for all the reasons that you just mentioned, Paul. Yeah. Well, that's that's the thing. I mean, I, I think it's very poignant to, to bring up uh, stuff like Mega Dungeons, right? Do, do we really think that any published Mega Dungeon was thoroughly play-tested? Is that even possible? That would take... It would take years, I would think, right? right. That would take years. So. Yeah, you yeah. have to zoom in. You have to zoom in. You have to play test little individual elements, and then hope that the that the whole stitches together in a in a pleasing way. I think. Yeah, yeah. I will say mm -hmm. that. So you know, the early you know, so so like the early adventures, right? The early module adventures for AD and D and so forth. 
we know that they originally, you know, were used in tournaments. So mm -hmm. you get, um, you know, 20 or 30 tables or whatever of people um, testing these adventures in tournaments and then turned into actual publications for campaigns. Uh, you know, yep. we slash I have wrestled with that, you know, production channel for years. Does a tournament game really work in a campaign? Um, is it reasonable? Is it too deadly? Um, and so, uh, but but clearly to begin with, they had they had a large amount of testing. And I noticed maybe in the late 80s or 90s that whereas the, at one point they had play tester credits on adventures, that entirely went away in, I feel like around the late 80s, 90s, I wasn't seeing that play testing credit anymore. Once they rolled out the core rule books to like third edition, fifth edition D&D, now there you have these giant thousands of names credits of playtesters, which looks very good, at least for the core rule books. So I feel like that thing for the publisher of D&D, I feel like that's roller coastered up and down yeah. over the years. Yeah. Yeah, and I feel, I feel like these days they, there's a lot of pride in the amount of playtesting that goes in. And, and even yes. just look at now about the announcement right. of the new edition of D&D that's coming out years in yep. advance, which I presume is all Three about. Years. Yeah, I presume that's all about broadcasting right. the idea that, yes, this thing is coming and we're going to be testing the crap out of it. Right. Right. Certainly right. they tested the crap out of fifth. I remember D&D &D right. Next, as it was called right. then, uh, being kind of in the works for a long time. I like uh, Stephen's point here, saying that he gets the impression that Gygax was testing the concept of this new kind of game, and I can see that. Hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, right. And John's saying um, old TSR products completed by freelancers were rarely or never play tested, and I certainly, you know, have heard stories of like um, the Quagmire Adventure. I think you've used that before, Paul. Mm -hmm. um, and I think I was that was that by Dave Cook or was that by somebody else? No, I'm, and hazy on that. But I, whoever it was, I remember them saying that they only had a month to churn those publications out. They had to get a page count and a word count, and they had the whole thing had to start and finish within four weeks. Um, nice. And that they, they clearly did not have time uh, in that, that, that 80s push for more, more product to, uh, mm. to properly test stuff. Yeah, Rasmus, thank you very much, John. Uh, it's really interesting. Um... You know, we, we kind of blended across here, but the idea of testing scenarios or modules versus testing rules is a big difference. Right. Uh, in fact, right. you know, the funny thing is the group I was playing for last night included a wide range of both ages and and experience levels with role playing, including somebody who was their right. second time ever role playing. Um, and there was uh, one person I was talking to who, uh, you know, I mentioned we're we're play testing this new system that I hope to publish soon. And uh, when I when he was asking me questions towards the end about about the publishing, it it took a while for him to realize that there was a difference between he was like, are you publishing the the scenario versus the rules? Yeah, you know, it took a, a while for him to realize that these were two separate things. Great, these were two separate yeah, things, great. and that one great, might great. be published without the other. Great, 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 great. And, yeah, that's that's like, a really good yeah. point, and I and, yeah. and I I'm comfortable, you know, wanting rigorously tested. Uh, uh, core rules and then saying, okay, your adventure is like, go crazy, kids. Um, <laughs> who knows what's going to happen there? Um, and I'm, I'm comfortable having this substrate of, you know, things that I'm confident about how to handle and then in an adventure being, you know, fine, if you launch off into craziness, I know that I can come back when I need to 
and rely on the the core rules have been tested when something you know reasonably concrete happens. So I'm fine with I'm personally really very fine with that distinction. And I think I think some people might be surprised like when I run a game because I spend so much time like on my blog and here talking about testing and rules and mechanics and numbers. And then when the actual game starts, it's like it's like everything's on fire. I don't know what's going on at that point. <laughs> <laughs> That's very funny. Very funny. <laughs> you know, I'd like to take a I'd like to take a little side tangent, Paul, because sometimes I feel that you and I have slightly different perspectives about the testing issue um, uh, because of our slightly different experiences with the video game industry. And hmm. so, okay. when when I when I got started a couple years before you did in video games, which was the prior millennium, embarrassingly. But we were still in the age of, um, you know, mass uh, uh, boxed product. Mm -hmm. And so where I started out, the, the games that we were producing to get them to market, we had to burn them to a CD. We had to print them in a box and it had to get sent out nationwide to stores specifically for Christmas. So we had a hard deadline like around Thanksgiving as the game had to be locked down. It had to be tested. It had to be suitable for human consumption. Uh, we had a big QA department on staff. We had like 20 or 30, you know, part-time QA testers testing the game for months. And we really felt like we were going to have a lot of egg on our face if we shipped those 20,000 boxed copies uh, out uh, in the era prior to internet distribution. And we really mm -hmm. had to get a solid product out for people under their tree on Christmas. And we couldn't, there were no... There were no tech faxes. Yeah, um, yeah. And then you fast forward and, and when you and I were working together, we did have at that point an online game and you've been working in that, in that vein ever since of an online game that could be updated at will by the company. And so it was a big mental shift for me to say, we don't have any QA department. We just push stuff out. And if we discover that it needs to get modified, we can just we can just the, the players will tell us the paying players will tell us, and we'll update it on the fly, over the web, and yeah. that was a really big mental shift for me. It's, um, it's really, where are you with some, that nowadays? There's some really fascinating practices these days uh, around that. Like yeah. we'll uh, I've worked for companies in the past that do uh, what they call A/B testing, um, yeah. where they they specifically will segment the population of the game of the population playing the game into groups, A and B, whatever you name it, whatever the heck you want. And then they might ship a new feature just to A and say, okay, this, and, and A might be only 10% of the population of the, of the people playing the game, just to see how does it work? Is it well received? Are there any problems, right? This is our, our, our basically our live testing. Okay. 10% of the population actually has the change and this is the test, right? This right, is the test, right. and then we can and then we can directly compare. Okay, how did they perform versus the the, the rest of the players who didn't have this feature and have been playing all along without it? You know, what did what did they like? How did they you know what did they buy? How did they you know how did they progress through levels? Whatever it is you're trying to test, whatever your 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 metric is for figuring out success, and then uh, you know if it's uh, poor, then you just pull it back and you say, nope, this feature's gone. Sorry, everybody. And uh, only 10% of the population is actually upset about that, maybe. Uh, or if it's good, then uh, you flip it on for everyone. Now everyone has it. And the 10% are like, sweet, we are, you know, we're the special group that got, got it early. 
Sure. Great. <laughs> are, you talking, are you thinking like, are those mobile games that you're working on mostly now or those other, yeah, other platforms? Those, uh, that kind of testing was done largely on mobile games. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Fascinating. Fascinating. Yeah. Now, John, John Miller's got a good point that, uh, an example like cyberpunk 277, uh, seems to have shown there's a limit to what the public will accept in terms of releasing a buggy product. And that's a good, that's a good example. Other things historically like, uh, battle cruiser 3000 AD, I think it was called, had that problem. I, I think that Daikatana had that problem. Yeah, I'm, I'm showing my age with yeah. really old video games. I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to present either that like it's now the wild west and we just turn shit on willy nilly. Um, that's not right. true, right? Certainly, right. internal testing is done. You know, we try to make sure that the that the that the feature is solid. But the real question is like, what is this feature going to do to the game overall? Is it actually going to improve the game? And what does even improve mean? Right, <laughs> right. Is it more fun? That's your favorite one, right? Is it more fun? Uh, do, 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 do the payers pay? Do the players my, pay us more? Right. Let me get do my they, calculator here. <laughs> yeah, that's more fun. Yeah. Right. Right. Do they play for more hours? Was that the goal for them to play more hours? Do they play for less yeah. hours? Did they, right. Right. I don't know. Do they rate us Maybe higher? Maybe they get satisfied the sooner. More five. More five star ratings. Right. That's a good right. metric. The players are happy. But it's interesting that you're talking, you know, we're talking about, you know, uh, testing fairly small limited features, right? Not an entire scenario in those kinds of cases. And, and that's the kind of thing that I feel it's reasonable, in theory at least, to, you know, get metrics and get, get data about how it's how it's performing. And like a whole a whole campaign or a whole scenario is harder to get your arms around. Now, obviously, yeah. we're not all we're not all uh, video game developers and we're not all wizards. Uh, producing D and D that have the capacity to push something out to possibly thousands of players for feedback. So yeah. we, you know, when we're doing our role playing, we are indie gamers, and we have <clears throat> four or five people at the table. Uh, yep. Maybe if we get really, maybe if we get really ambitious, we run a couple games online, or we take it to a convention traditionally. Um, I would say that's like for for testing for individuals who are writing their own game content, their own RPG content. Um, I would say the, the, my biggest piece of advice is go to the conventions, right? Take your stuff to a convention. It's a great yeah. place to, to play test your stuff. Um, you know, you can run the same thing a couple of times for different, totally different groups. Uh, and make sure you schedule yourself some time at the end for gathering feedback. A lot of times we let our games run right up great. to the wire. And everybody's yep. like, you know, scrambling to get on to their next game. And uh, I would say, make sure you uh, leave some, leave a little time there at the end to just chat with the players and say, what, what did you like? What worked? What didn't work? That's killer. That's actually killer. Yeah. How how um, how polished do you feel like you need an adventure in before you take it to a convention? I mean, it's got to be runnable, right? I can't. Yeah. <laughs> I have to be able to run the thing. But um, the game that I ran last night um, is largely in my head. I would say that uh, I have about three to four pages of notes, and they're very kind of just bullet points and. Uh, it's very rough, and it's certainly not a thing I would publish as is. Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting, like, like where, when do you start? Well, I don't know. I got problems, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I ask. <laughs> you know what, Paul? I'm getting data on what other people say uh, they need yeah. to polish the adventure before they start testing it. That's what I'm currently here's, testing. Here's, here's the I interesting thing I will say. Um, I feel like. 
the more the more I write content for RPGs, the more I realize that I really kind of want two formats because that format of like very very short, very condensed notes, I find to be super yeah. helpful when I'm running when I'm running the game. And however, like there's a lot of thought that I that's a lot of things that are in my head, and so for me to actually communicate that to someone else so that they can run the game, I need a lot more prose, right? But I worry then that now I've handed them this giant chunk of prose and they're going to have a much harder time running it at the table. And I feel like probably what I want is both that I probably want to publish a thing where I say, here's all the long prose so that you can get all the, all the notions and all the concepts and all the things of the elements of the game. And then here's your like three pages of quick notes for actually running the damn thing at the table. Do you feel that that <clears throat> runs up against the principle of don't repeat yourself? The uh, the any any piece of data should be in only one place of your system, uh, with, with the concern being if then you make some kind of modification later on, you might do it in place A and forget to do it in B. And mm -hmm. Now you've got your your text contradicting itself. Yep, is that, uh, is that, a, is that a risk? Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, that's definitely a risk. I would say. Yeah, I don't know how to solve yeah. that, but I but I will say, like I do, I, I think uh, I have works that I've published where I, you know, after the fact, I look at what I've published and, I, and I'm like, well, I wouldn't want this in front of me while I'm running a game. And I feel like that's maybe, you know, not great that I'm and I'm presenting things for sale that are not what I want, right? Like, <laughs> that's not fantastic. Now, maybe, maybe the real the real answer is what I need is like long prose and then you need to like sit down and write your own notes because I did this with somebody else's module and and it and right. it worked way better, way better. I don't know. I'm always ready and willing to do that level of work. Um, right. We yeah. talked about this yeah. a number of times about where yeah. to, we've we and our viewers have talked about this a number of times about where to dial in the level of detail or extent of text. And you know, again, there, the dial goes back to you know Gygax's original Greyhawk, which is one line per room. Uh, yep. literally one line from the whole thing fits on 15 lines for one, one level up to like, I feel for me, like the longest thing I ever saw was uh, temple of elemental evil. Like one, mm. one room goes on pages and pages and pages. Um, yeah. you know, and obviously initially drafted by Gygax and then actually published by Frank Mentzer. And that is like, Oh my God, that's so far too long guys. Yeah. That's really tough, I think, because generally what I like is to have enough of the the room in my head that I can give my own spin on what it looks like, um, and then and then I can have all the details readily accessible. So as the players interact with the environment and ask questions, I can pull those out and be like, oh yeah, oh you, you know, I I want to, you know, what does the artwork look like? Oh, okay, well it looks like this, right? Um, and that's hard. That's hard. Like you have to really be intimately knowledgeable of all the details to be able to do both of those things. Um, I've seen a lot of, a lot of, I feel like we're straying, we're straying in our topic a lot, but I feel like I've seen some adventures recently that try to solve this problem with interesting formatting, right? We'll do things with like highlights or different colors or whatnot to like pop out the important details of room. So you can glance quickly and be like, boom, boom, boom. Okay. Those are the important bits. And then you can also then like read more closely and, and dig up the, the more detailed information as needed. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Now to bring, okay. So to bring it, that's a good point. So to bring it back maybe closer to our, to our testing conversation, like, and, and I'm so glad. So Paul is the one that suggested this topic. 
And mm. I'm, I'm so delighted that he did because it's something that's so close to me. I wouldn't think to bring it up, frankly. It's like it's it's like the, the it's, it's like my skin. I wouldn't think to start talking about it because it's with me all the time, uh, like a fish in water. Um, yeah. But of course, I spend a lot of time thinking about how to test, uh, you know, game rule designs. And, um, you know, if anybody that follows my blog, I have, you know, what I wind up doing is I wind up writing code to make a computer simulation for a game such as D&D Combat or my Book of War War Game <clears throat> or the Bismarck War Game. Or I actually made a simulator for the board game Game of Life because my partner Isabel was making an art project where she was converting the Game of Life to talk about immigration issues. And so... You know, granted that I'm not, you know, I'm not wizards and I can't push it out in front of 10,000 people, I felt like a pretty good step in that direction was to write a computer simulator for the game, which whichever one I'm talking about, and, you know, have that run it a billion times and get some kind of result about what tends to happen. You know, like for the game of life, we could dial up what the, you know, what the awards were, what the penalties were, depending on how many people we felt should should you know win or go bankrupt along the course of the game and i felt like i've, I've gotten a lot of, of value out of that i've gotten a lot of value not trying to you know entirely just guess what the resource values of units should be in games and you know so i've got that in my blog right at the moment i have some links on our youtube description this episode and at one point, I you know even gave a talk at uh, Johns Hopkins U to a game design course on that, and that's my my top recommendation if someone's got coding skills to do that. Are you, are you now? Are you only testing the the really the crunchy bits like this? Like, do you ever try to formulate ways to test the like social interactions or the like you talked about the the earlier the the notion of this group trying to ally themselves with some other um, NPC group? can't remember that Duke or something you were talking about. Right. Um, yeah. Like, is that stuff testable? I, I, I don't know how, I mean, so crunchy bits only for me, crunchy yeah. bits only. Yeah. For, I mean, the crunchy bits are the crunchy, are the parts you can crunch. Um, and, uh, so now we're just debating definitions, Paul. Now, we're, now, we're, now we're, we've got a Wittgenstein problem here. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, so yeah, I don't know how, I mean, can, can, I mean, I, and again, see, that's, that's the two different differences. I'm happy to have, you know, ironed out crunchy bits that I'm comfortable and feel like I can handle. And then the social, the social bits, that's the part that's going to surprise me every time. And that's why it's interesting to run. Yeah, I, I feel like there's still um, the the social bits are uh, still testable at least in terms of running it okay. multiple times and and discovering the holes, right? Where okay. are the, you know, where did I? Oh, you know, just like people pointing out plot holes, right? Did, like you ever have that? Like a player point out, like, oh, but this this NPC shouldn't know this thing, or this NPC couldn't possibly have done this thing that he's claiming to have done. And you go, oh no! <laughs> there's actually there's actually a plot hole in my writing. Oops. I'll see. I mean, I'll I'll say that I feel like I see that in a number of movies, right? I was just thinking about like about three movies just last night that are all like interesting and I like them. And then in the last act, you know, they have to have a climax, and the climax is kind of not entirely believable. So there was some little there was some little thing to arrange that. So I'm, I'm yeah. certainly you know I've certainly spotted that kind of stuff myself before. Yeah. So but when I, think, I, I mean, think, Paul, when I run an adventure, it's bulletproof. What are you talking about? It's bulletproof. <laughs> I've never, I've never. 
I'm definitely hoping when when playtesting, and, and this is this is pure luck. I think there's not there's no technique to this, but I'm hoping to expose that kind of stuff, right? That I that I want to run the game in such a way that the players will point that stuff out, and I'll go, oh, I. Sh-. And then the the real trick, the thing that I always forget to do is when that happens, is to, to take a moment to write down a note to myself for later of like, hey, remember, <laughs> the players found this hole, and you better fix it. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so Eric Worldender here has a comment saying uh, that he play tested an adventure earlier this year, uh, one you were running for the second time and found testing how well the NPC motivations and personalities came across was really useful. That's good. That's good. That's good. Uh, that's, that's good data there, Eric. Thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, There's... the other thing I'll say is that for me, you know, personally, you know, because it's part of my, um, you know, professional life as well, teaching math and, and computing is that I'm all every day, I'm ha- trying to hammer to my first time introductory computing students, you've got to test it, you've got to test your software, you've got to test it. And, you know, for many of us, that's just obvious, of course, you're going to do that. But for, you know, first time people that have never dealt with, you know, creating systems, that is mind blowing. And for, you know, for some of them, they have, you know, for, for some of us, it would just be intuitive. Like I'm going to run it two or three times and it will, the results are right. But yeah. that, that step um, is not intuitive to everybody. And even, I even have some math students that I taught, you know, every day I talk about how you're going to double check this one, how you're going to double check that one. And I do have some, you know, more challenged students at the end of the semester go, I never got that checking bit that you were talking about <laughs> all the time. I just <laughs> never brocked what you were talking about ever. Fascinating, um, and it's interesting you know, it's, how easy it is to to over to overlook that. It's not just students. I'll say, Dan, I've I've worked yeah. at large video game companies and heard the CTO stomping <laughs> down the down the hallway yelling, "Test your shit! Test your shit!" <laughs> I see that. I've seen practices too, where where the uh, you know when you submit your code into uh, version control, that uh, you must include a note of how did you test it. Yep. Yep. Just to yep. prove and that you course, did. Right. And of course, there are paradigms like, you know, test driven development where you write the tests first before you write the code. And I'm I'm not, you know, requiring my students to do that, but you got to test at some point. I've had some really good experiences doing test driven development. And so now I'm wondering, how can I bring that into my role playing? Uh, how do I how do I do test driven scenario? Development. How would you possibly do test-driven development in a role-playing game, Paul? My I don't God, know. man! It must be possible, right? It must be possible. I, I don't no, know. No, no, I don't see that. Not. That'd no, be fascinating. Not. If anybody sees how to do that, please tell us. Yeah, we'll yeah. Have a new, <laughs> we'll have a new do, do game design development paradigm. <laughs> 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 so, yeah, Boolean, no, did you I, have fun? I'm, 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 <laughs> I'm imagining you're trying to develop the test first before you've developed the game. So you sit down and and you you're all right, everybody ready to play? Yeah, how do we play? I don't know. I haven't read the rules yet. <laughs> did you have fun? <laughs> no. All right. Well, the test failed. Perfect. No, it's fine. No, so you make rules that make you change it, so you say yes. N A N. Oh dear! Oh dear! Oh dear! Oh. Uh, 
Are there are there other methods other than trial by fire? Have you ever done anything like uh, I'm I'm thinking of? There's a specific case, uh, and this wasn't for developing rules, but for um, when I when I first got the latest edition of Warhammer Fantasy uh, roleplay, I think uh, fourth edition, um, combat was complicated, uh, very complicated, and yeah. I was having a lot of trouble rocking how it worked. Um, so I literally sat down and made a couple of dummy characters and ran by myself a couple of yep. combats. And just played them multiple times just so that I could understand, oh, okay, this is how that works. This is how that works. And then I think wrote some blog posts about like, aha, I figured it out. Here's the information. Here's where the text is confusing and how you can, uh, you know, figure this out, you know, figure out what I figured out here. And, and you know, included pictures and text about about the tests that I ran. So I think that's Yeah, really and I've helpful. done that too. Yeah. yeah. I've done that too. Um, now, you know, interestingly, you know, Paul has an incredibly popular video on YouTube called Can I Play D&D Alone Solo? Um, and, uh, you know, that can, and I've seen that can be helpful for DMs to get ready for games, uh, to run a, a small scenario to see how it's going to work out in advance. And yeah. I've done the same thing. And I have found that to be to be quite helpful, actually. Or, or just to give yourself familiarity with a mechanic you haven't used before, right? right. You know, if you have, you're running right. Savage Worlds, and you've never used their chase mechanic, and you think you might use it in an upcoming game. Yeah, just sit down and, and, and make a dummy one right. and, and run through it a couple times. Uh, right. It can be really, really illuminating. There is a risk, right? There's a risk that the DM is going to accidentally become too much of an expert. <clears throat> at the scenario and they're going to steamroller the players the first when yeah. who are learning it for the first time and 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 i've had that and that actually has come up at least once or twice on our book award saturday show actually that i'm like well i only looked at the results of a billion of these i'm sorry um I and thought, i you know i, I accidentally were, i thought you were referring to jousting there so that that wasn't a that was a comment that was the next that was the next clause paul the next, yeah. the next clause was going to be about jousting, exactly. And yeah, um, if you're ever in an OD and D game with Dan, and there's an opportunity to joust, don't do it. Get the hell out of there! <laughs> just, just, no, no, fireball. See ya. <laughs> and there, see, there you go. See, like that. So watch it. So watch out for that. Don't, uh, you know, don't, don't drive it into the ground. Don't drive your testing in the ground as a DM. Um, uh, you know, don't, don't become sick of it. Um, when should you, you know, so I, so there's, there's a phrase uh, that I've heard of real artists ship, right? Real, mm -hmm. real artists actually get the thing out to the people. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, I had, you know, back when, when I had bands, I had, um, I, you know what? I'll even I'll I, I don't know whether I should say the name or not, but I had I had lovely people in a, 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 in a band that we shared a rental space with, and they were just such wonderful musicians. And they they you know they they gold plated it too much, and they had an album that they were working on, and they worked on it for a year, and then they were like, well, we just need to re-record the whole thing, and they re-recorded it. And the problem was the more that they learned about their own piece, the more that they could see tiny, minute little things that were irritating them that surely no one else in the entire world would possibly spot. Hmm. Um, when, do you, when do you make the call? When do you make the call and just say, I'm done with this and I'm, I'm gonna put it on DM's Guild or something like that? How do you hmm. know when you're done? I don't know. I almost, I almost feel like for me, it always goes the other way around. I'm just like, I have this deadline. Let me do as much testing as I can up until that point. 
and then uh, cross my fingers and hope it was enough. So maybe what I'm, what I'm hearing is you've got to set a deadline. Just you've got set to set a deadline. a deadline in advance and just stick to that. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I, I mean, you know, uh, as, as best you can, I guess I would say. I mean, I tried to do that with Fearful Ends, and my deadline was going to be um, actually the end of this month, and that's clearly right. not happening. So right. you can readjust, you can reevaluate, and say, oh, nope, that deadline was unrealistic. I'm going to change it. Um, just don't let yourself do it too much, right? If you keep doing it over and over and over again, eventually then, then there are no deadlines. And even so, and, and Eric's pointing out, of course, that we are, uh, there's this thing called the internet, I'm heard, that I think I can connect my computer to now. Um, yep. And, uh, you know, even on uh, DMs Guild or uh, drive through RPG, you can, yeah, you can upload revisions and people do that. Yeah. And it's very, very, I find that very valuable as a customer there actually. So you do have I've, the opportunity to learn and, and refine. I've, I've certainly done that with pretty much everything I've listed up there is inevitably somebody finds right. something. Somebody always is going to find something. You're never going to find all yeah. of it. I think that's, yeah. that's the thing, right? I've, I've had works where I've, I've hired professional editors to go through my work and I posted it up there and still somebody finds something and they're like, what, didn't you edit? Like yes, of course I edited. Fascinating. Oh, that's yes. fascinating. I'm like, <laughs> yeah. Fascinating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just, I've seen someone write the, I've seen someone write the the very best way to to spot a typo is to spend three months editing, revising, reviewing, actually release it, and then and then look at it the very next morning. And that is when you are guaranteed <laughs> that you're going to find a bunch of find typos and grammar mistakes. Yeah. The five minutes, the five minutes the next morning after you release it. I will say I found something I found super valuable if you can if you can do it, uh, if you have a, a, a large enough network, uh, a really valuable test. I think if you're writing uh, game content, especially writing your own scenarios, is to pass it off to someone else to run, get someone else to do the yeah. test for you. Yeah, you know, and it's not yeah. just like now I don't have to test myself. Great, you know, less mm -hmm. work for me. No, no, no. Still run your own game and still test it yourself. But get somebody else to run it uh, is yeah. really fascinating. You'll get a whole raft of different kinds of information than you get from testing it yourself. And specifically, you'll get feedback on. I, I love that, and I, you'll get feedback on: Is this the right amount of detail? Is it too little right. detail that I don't know what's going yeah. on, or is it too much detail that I'm getting lost in it? And you'll, and of course that'll vary for different people, but you'll at least get, you'll get some feedback about whether you fit the right, the right amount of detail and organization or not. Yep. That's also yep. really killer. We should do more of that. We really got to do more <laughs> of like handing off, handing off our adventures to other people to run and see, see how that worked. <laughs> is that, is that a dig? <laughs> no, no, it's a, it's a wonderful opportunity, Paul. A wonderful opportunity. This is gold, and we got to move on it. Excellent, excellent. Uh, we are just about out of time here, Dan. Do you have any final thoughts on playtesting? I'm in favor of it, Paul. <laughs> good, good, I'm pro testing. Yeah, yeah. As as am I. As am I. I just think you have to be realistic with yourself and don't beat yourself up too much. That like it's not gonna it's not it's not gonna make your work bulletproof, right? Like it'll make your work better, but yeah, you know, the errors will still crop up. You you. Will, I think you it was will... I think it was whoever it was earlier half an hour ago who said all all uh, game designs uh, uh, survive right up until first contact with the players. So you want, yeah, you want that first contact. And I mean, the, the very first time you run it will be the, the biggest learning opportunity. 
So mm-hmm. um, at least at least one or two or three times, and if you have the opportunity, conventions are nowadays online. You're gonna you're gonna learn so much about about your scenario that it's a really fascinating experience. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. Totally agree. Uh, viewers, if you have any ideas of ways to test your game rules or your scenarios that we have not touched on, uh, please leave us a note in the comments. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, maybe that will spin up additional conversations on this very uh, fascinating topic. Uh, so leave us some comments and uh, and. Uh, yeah, that's it. Leave us a comment, please. Yeah, and while you're there, look for the links that we've got in the YouTube uh, description for uh, uh, testing that uh, that we and I have done in the past and kind of our philosophy towards that. And don't forget that you can like and follow and subscribe to us, The Wandering DMs, on places like YouTube and Twitch and Twitter and Facebook and also GitHub if you're a software person. Uh, and we do have the handle Wandering DMs on all of those sites. For Look, look for us there for updates. If you prefer to listen to us in audio-only podcast format, uh, my apologies, because we're really behind in releasing them. <laughs> but, uh, they are available on our website at wanderingdms.com uh, and through other sites such as Google Podcasts and iTunes and Spotify. We will catch up. I've got a raft of them to release. Uh, those are those are coming out very soon, uh, so, so hang tight. Um, and... Um, yeah, if you do listen to us on one of those other third-party sites, please take a moment to rate and review us there. That helps other users of that site find us, and we really appreciate it. Yeah, we really do. And, of course, uh, huge thanks to our patrons who support the Wandering Dams shows. And if you're in a position and you would like to join them, please do visit patreon.com slash wanderingdms. And we have uh, a couple different tiers. We have discounts on our merch, access to a private Discord server, monthly behind-the-scenes videos, polls, and surveys, and also after-party chat that we have in about 10 minutes after every uh, Sunday episode. Uh, Paul is back Monday with more uh, 10 Dead Rats, I think. Um, Mm -hmm. And don't forget, of course, we are live every Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern time, so we hope that you'll join us again next week for another thought-provoking discussion. We'll see you then.